welcome to the latest episode of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. As we hide under our umbrellas and turn the central heating on, seeing as we're at the height of summer, sigh, <laughs> we thought we'd also turn bookwise to opposites and contradictions. <laughs> of course, there are no such things in the offices of Berlin, where oh. we, from where we bring you this podcast, <laughs> and where we are also celebrating 25 years in the business of promoting Scotland's cultural life. Yes, yeah, so in this episode, we will be discussing possibly one of the mothership novels of Scotland, and that's James Hogg's The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, a book that many tout as uh, a defining work of the Scottish cultural psyche. Um, so we'll also be joined by a very special guest, our own author and historian Sheila Shikowsky, whose latest book, Enlightenment Edinburgh, was published last month. Um, Sheila is something of an expert on the Enlightenment period, and so she is the perfect guide to the buildings, the statues, the people and the ideas of the Enlightenment. And the book is really great. It's a book that probably should be handed out to everyone at the arrivals lounge in the airports they come into the city. <laughs> so, But we'll be talking to Sheila about that in the second half of the podcast. Indeed. Yes, so Justified Sinner. I'm not going to say its full name every time. <laughs> there are many different names <laughs> yeah. inside the book also. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, there's a whole lot going on in this novel. Um, I myself have read it three times now. How, yeah. Have you read it? I think I've read it three times too, yeah. although once I was sort of studying it for long enough that I think that I must have read it more than once. Right. But I think that counts as a reading, right. a one reading. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and but and would you also agree that it's some it's a book that s- continues to surprise you each time you read and throws up something new? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it can be billed as a a classic gothic horror with a you know supernatural qualities to it, a satire on bigotry and hypocrisy, um, uh, an acute representation of mental breakdown, an exploration of totalitarian modes of thought. Uh, way ahead of its time, postmodern study on the nature of truth and authorship. But why decide? Why pin it down? All of the above. Yes, yeah, all <laughs> these things. Yeah, that's a brilliant rundown of genre-defying uh, and like incredible flexibility of this book. Yeah. So, but for a straightforward summary, uh, it's the story of Rob- Robert Ringham, who was the second-born son of an unhappy marriage. Uh, who may or may not be the result of an extramarital affair. Um, In any case, uh, the estate into which he is born um, is split, like many other things in the novel. (laughs) The laird uh, of Dalcastle lives with his firstborn son, George, and uh, his mistress secretary, Mrs Logan, whereas Robert, the second son, is brought up by his mother, who is extremely religious, Mm -hmm. and her spiritual advisor, whose name is Robert Ringham also. (laughs) They are ardent Calvinists, and they bring Robert up to believe that he is one of the chosen. Uh, Which is, you know, what you want to hear when when you're making this way into the world, that you are a special one. uh, As, yes, a special snowflake. (laughs) As a young man, he makes friends with a mysterious stranger who will only answer to the name of Gil Martin. He deliberately will not say that he has a Christian name. Yeah. They end up in Edinburgh at the turn of the 18th century, which is a bubbling cauldron of political and religious division and discontent. 
uh, there, the two of them together, start a campaign of stalking and generally disrupting Robert's brother George's life. Yeah. All kinds of dastardly and mysterious <laughs> events conspire. Uh, and George is slain in a duel in grief. The laird of Dark Castle, his father, dies, and Robert comes to inherit the estate. Uh, the novel is structured in a very, very particular way with two main narratives. The editor's narrative, which is written objectively, and the first person, Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which is written by Robert Ringham himself. This, in its turn, is split into two parts, yeah. uh, a narrative part and a diary part. Um, and the narrative is printed up and the diary is meant to have been found in manuscript. Yeah. These two halves relate the same story in with different emphases, but also tell slightly different stories. Yeah, they there seem are, to diverge a little bit. And there are events that happened in one that don't happen in the other. Yeah. Some added extras. The editor concentrates on the pursuit of uh, George's killer by uh, Mrs. Logan, and her campaign to prove Robert's guilt in the, in that murder. And Robert's diary really is a sort of spiral, yeah. a spiralling jumble of illness, lamentation, a desire to be rid of his mysterious friend, him being confronted by evidence of debauchery and evil doing that he doesn't have any memory of. And the whole thing gets rolled up into a sort of journey of flight and exile and then utter despair yeah and death yeah and death <laughs> at the very end the editor returns with yet more versions of the story <laughs> to conclude or not to confuse and confound us even more <laughs> yeah just to show how these things pr proliferate yeah <laughs> So that's um, a quick pressy of the novel, but to tell us a little bit more about James Hogg, um, he was born in the Borders in 1770, and uh, like Robert Burns, who we've talked about in a previous podcast, he came from a very modest rural background where he worked as a shepherd and a farmhand. Um, unlike Burns, who had some schooling throughout his youth, Hogg was largely self-educated by his own reading and through his mother, who was a collector of ballads and a bit of a storyteller herself. Hogg was working from the age of seven on yeah. as a shepherd. I know. So I think he had gone to school and had learned to read, but, but then for, worked. Yeah, just a wee forgot, bit. Forgot. Yeah. And then as a teenager, retaught himself. Yeah. yeah. His reading came on leaps and bounds again once he started working for other landowners, and particularly while he worked under James, Lade, um, sorry, James Laidlaw in the Yarrow Valley in the 1790s. Um, and he very much encouraged Hogg to, to um, you know, borrow books from his library and, and all that kind of thing. And so then Hogg himself also formed a literary society for other shepherds, and he started writing his own ballads and folk tales and became familiar with the works of Robert Burns too, just as Robert Burns was dying. <laughs> In 1801, uh, Hogg was recruited to help collect ballads for Walter Scott's collection, The Minstrelsy of the Scottish Border. Now, his mother was a big contributor yeah. to that ballad collection as well, and um, it didn't go down so well with her to have her tales put into print. Mm. Um, and she very much, there's uh, 
what she had to say about that is recorded and she sort of feels that he killed them all oh. killed the character of the tales yeah. um and uh, but this uh, push pull give and take and collaboration and, and slight antipathy between Hogg and Scott um, is a really interesting story. Mm. You know they're both from within a stone's throw of, of each, each other, other in the borders, came but very different, live very different lives. <laughs> yeah. But also saw each other, wrote about each other, respected each other's work. Yeah, and rubbed along and had a go though as well. Yeah, I mean it wasn't an e- definitely wasn't an, an easy, easy relationship. Yeah. Anyway, he met Mahog and Scott met in eighteen o two, and he became and Hogg started working for the Edinburgh Magazine throughout this sort of first decade of the eighteen hundreds. Hogg was trying to start his own farm, uh, and just wasn't able to make farming and shepherding um, work for him financially. Yeah. Uh, his po- first poetry collection, The Mountain Bard, was published in 1807, uh, whereupon <laughs> um, he moved to Edinburgh to concentrate on writing in 1810. He started a journal called The Spy, um, which lasted a year, and he sort of put around subscriptions, and so it was really like, on the fringe of Edinburgh Literary yeah. Society. He was in um, it, but not really. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this is all the way through the 1810s, which, of course, is the great age of um, Walter, the beginning of Walter Scott's novels, mm. uh, starting with Waverley in 1814, and just, like, a really, really buoyant and vibrant Edinburgh literary culture with magazines. The Edinburgh Review was started in 1802, and just... Uh, a real sense that Edinburgh was a literary capital. Yeah, smack bang in the Enlightenment period. Absolutely. And um, so it was, in some ways, though, through uh, the caricature of him in Blackwood's magazine uh, that Hogg found fame. Uh, And he was uh, a contributor in his own right to the magazine, but he also became a figure of fun, within its pages as the shepherds, the Ettrick shepherds. I always considered the Ettrick shepherds just in the way, in the same way that Robert Burns was called the ploughman poet. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realise uh, right. it was actually... Derogatory. You. Yeah, I didn't realise that yeah. until I started investigating Hogg a little bit more. Mm. And so it makes me think we shouldn't use that term anymore to describe him because... No, because it was because it was coined at the time in yeah, a derogatory manner. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think he, James Hogg himself would like people to refer to him as that anymore. No. Yeah. You know, because the, the character that was created of the Ettrick Shepherd was, was part animal and part rural simpleton and part savant, which actually caused him quite a bit of anguish at the time as well. You know, he was complicit in it, but he was also very wary and, you know, didn't particularly like it too much. Oh, no, absolutely. And I think there were huffs. Yeah, <laughs> I do have that sense. <laughs> um, and uh, in his lifetime, he was better known as a poet than he was as a novelist. Um, yeah. And his novels were critically panned, including Aww. this one. His other novels are The Three Perils of Man, The Three Perils of Woman, The Brownie of Bodsbeck, mm-hmm. 
and none of them were reprinted. No, they didn't sell over very the course well. of the nineteenth century, and they did not sell well, as you say. Yeah, books which can. is why they were not <laughs> reprinted. <laughs> in fact, almost all of them have only only returned to print in the late twentieth century. Yeah. But Confessions of a Justified Sinner famously got its reevaluation um, in. 1947, when André Gide wrote a glowing introduction to an edition um, of the novel that sort of paved, paved the way for that one really to come to the fore. Yeah, thank you, André. <laughs> it's a good service you've done for literature there. <laughs> so back to the novel, back to the novel itself. Um, you know, this is, it's, it's a novel that's really, it's a really unsettling read. It's not a book... The, well, I, I'm not sure if there, there probably are people that could call it a favourite, but it's just not a book that I myself can say that I enjoy reading. Yeah. Because it is, it is really unsettling and, and scary. Yeah, it's scary and it sort of grabs you. Yeah, and or it's just particularly. It's not a comforting read no, by any stretch of no, the imagination. No, not yeah. at all, not at all. Um, and I always remember from the previous times that I read it, it was always the tennis match scene. <laughs> With Robert and his brother, it just, you know, if it just chilled me every time I, I read it, and even going back to it again to just now, it was, you know, you read it with your hands over your eyes, you know, just yeah, your fingers. I mean, it's, it's such a what Ringham does when he shows up at this sort of young larks, <laughs> young bloods playing sport, right, yeah. um, and it, on a on a tennis court, uh, and he just. You can see the black figure just standing there, being completely silent. Yeah, it's like a it's real psychological warfare, mm. and it's but so then, well attuned. Yeah, but and, and then but when he starts to interfere with the match as well, yeah, there's sort of mania and an unself conscious mania mm. to it. Like you don't get a sense at any point is like I'm making a fool of myself here. No, which it's it just freaks me out every time I read it because not only because of what he was doing but because of how it's related too it's related really matter-of-factly there's and 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 even in the diary section when robert's describing it himself it's just mm. so unself-conscious and it just kind of just kind of takes my breath away absolutely i mean in the and you see in that instance the difference between the editor's narrative and the um the and, uh, and robert's own view of things yeah and, uh, the editor just said this happened and then this happened and this happened and gradually the effect was on George that he yeah. started to lose his friends and this happy-go-lucky... And it goes on for pages and pages and pages. Yeah. But Robert, when he's talking about it, dispatches it in a couple of sentences. Yeah. And he, he, he's very... He's he's very clear about his intent and how he why he behaved in this way. Yeah. He was just like, my, my behaviour was not strange. Yeah. And it I, really, really was. Yeah. But this time round, when I was reading it, because as as we said near the beginning, there's so many ways that you can come to to this novel. Um, I had more of an eye on what is the truth of the story element because, um, you know, also while reading this novel, this was the first time I'd read it after I'd finished reading the Graham McRae Burnett book, my um, bloody his bloody project, sorry, which. You know, you can see the the. Mm. It's like a call and response. Those two books, <laughs> absolutely. And yeah. and so and with that book, the great thing about McCree Burnett's book and um, Justified Sinner is, what's really interrogating is, 
what the truth of the story is. Who gets to tell the story defines what the story is. Who, you know, we, we get Robert's point of view and we get an editor's point of view. Where does he get his evidence? Yeah. And, you know, there are hints of different characters who are bit part players. And so what, what is the real story that we're trying to, to, to say here? And so again, all the way while I was reading Justified Sinner this time round, I was thinking that what it really needed was a serial type podcast <laughs> where instead of, you know, we're investigating a real murder, we're actually investigating the truth behind what happened and the, the brotherly relationship between George and Robert. I think this podcast should be made. Yes, <laughs> and I think that that's the perfect modern update. Yeah, but as you say, I think it's hard now, like just right now at this moment in Scottish literary culture where uh, Graham McCray Burnett booker shortlisting um, (laughs) looms large Um, uh, you know to to compare the two novels and of course one of the things that they do that's that they're sort of mirror images of each other right Mm. in that the 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 narrative goes first like there's much less of an editor's hand the editor doesn't have so clearly defined a personality i don't think but you thought you still have because it's the later 19th century in in that one uh is um, physicians and lawyers mm. and witnesses yeah. giving evidence. Yeah. And so you've got this real disjunction between here's what people say happened and here's what happened experts in the world yeah, yeah. are being asked Just to evaluate like, things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but the, ed- but the editor in Justified Sinner, who is supposedly objective and is supposedly just presenting what happened is anything but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he pres- the, the thing about the editor is that the, the section of the editor is 100 years ahead of the actual happenings of Robert Ringham and George. Yeah. Um, so he's presenting himself as a man of reason, 100 years on, it's the age of enlightenment, and he's bringing us this cautionary tale of what the religious fervour in the Reformation period did to a soul. And yet, for somebody throughout that whole section, for somebody who's supposedly pragmatic and rational, his own prejudices just leak out everywhere in the narrative of um, of, of the story of, of Robert and, and George. This 100-year difference, 100-year time lag, yeah. is sort of at once meant to say, this was so long ago, look at these religious fanatics. Let's point and laugh at what they were like in days gone by. <laughs> but then also, you know, that it's just sort of just over the horizon of known history, mm. of, like, ex- lived history, or people can get this story from their, their grand-nephew or, like, their great-uncle or yeah. something. Like, at the end, it comes in, it's like, so, Mr. Laidlaw talked to the nephew of the man who had been, mm. you know, kind of thing. And um, he, there's quite a lot of the editor writing, it was like this 100 years ago, but maybe it's still like this today. You know, we've still got faction yeah. and what have you. But it does seem, you know, like, the, these are Highlanders walking around Edinburgh. <laughs> you know, in the closes and, um, you know, as we'll be talking about with Sheila later, the old town didn't disappear overnight. No. So um, when Hogg is writing these wonderful sort of action sequences that are happening in the old town in Edinburgh, that's still something that I think will be remembered or 
maybe viewed with nostalgia or you know maybe viewed with contempt too it's hard hard to know um but one of the things that i think that yes we can definitely say about the editor is that um he is aligned with the sort of landed interest he is probably a small c conservative or big Mm, maybe big c or tory as they would have as they would have called themselves um so he's a sort of an antiquarian gentleman really i mean he's you know he's not a paid investigator or anything like that and he's an antiquarian gentleman of the kind that scott's waverly novels satirize and you know who scott really was himself you wonder what his motivation is for telling this story i mean it's interesting i'm just going to read the first paragraph actually because um it doesn't, it doesn't really give clues about the editor's motivation, but there's a lot of eyes in it. So, um, but there's also a lot of impersonal stuff as well. And it goes like this. It appears from tradition, as well as some parish registers still extant, that the lands of Dal Castle, or Dal Chastel, <laughs> as it is often spelled, were possessed by a family of the name of Colwyn about 150 years ago and for at least a century previous to that period. That family was supposed to have been a branch of the ancient family of Cahoon, and it is certain that from its spring Bacowans that spread towards the border. I find that in the year 1687, George Colwyn succeeded his uncle of the same name in the lands of Dalcastle and Balgrenon. And this being all I can gather from of the family from history, to tradition I must appeal for the remainder of the motley adventures of that house. He starts this off by as if he was writing a genealogical history of mm. this grand family. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what's going on there. You know, that's all I can gather of the family from history. Uh, I must appeal for the remainder of the motley adventures of that house to tradition. But of the matter furnished by the latter of these powerful monitors, I have no reason to complain. It has been handed down to the world in unlimited abundance, and I am certain that in recording the hideous events which follow, I am only relating to the greater part of the inhabitants of at least four counties of Scotland, matters of which they were before perfectly well informed. Mm. So, why bother? You know, you've got history and tradition opposed. You've got all kinds of supposition and suggestion and all these things that are not fixed. Like, is it Dal Castle or Dal Castle? Dal Chastel or whatever. Um, Is it Colwyn Colwyn or Cowan or Cahoon? And, you know, there's just so much. And, you know, we've got parish records, Mm. but they don't tell you anything. (laughs) So um, everything is a puzzle. Yeah. And everything is just going to slip. And even if you do have evidence like parish records, does it get to the nub of anything? No, it because just... part of the immediate, immediately, the yeah. question is one of paternity, isn't yeah. it? You know, uh-huh. and parish records are meant to, meant to uh, tell the truth of paternity. But in, in this, it's unclear who Robert Ringham's father is. The opening of the, the, the editor's story is awful. <laughs> um, the editor starts with talking about the marriage night between the laird and Robert's mother. And he presents this in quite a matter-of-fact way as, as you know, um, that the laird has taken on this difficult woman and 
and all that. But then he relates this... Who is very beautiful. Who's very beautiful. Right? Which is also funny because none of the rest of the story gives a sense that she's very beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So she's a beautiful woman, but she's also a highly religious woman. Yeah. And it suggests that she's a woman who probably wasn't interested in getting married at all. That's right. And so this marriage starts really horrendously with an unconsummated wedding night. Yep. And the wife is so distraught at being married that she ends up running back towards to, to her father's house. And instead of the father being sympathetic to, to the daughter saying, oh, we're really sorry to have put you through this, he decides that the best way to get his daughter to go back to yes. her husband is to like beat her and lock her up and treat her with so, such a horrendous manner that she wants to go back to her husband that she doesn't really love and doesn't want to be right. married to. And it's it's so weird because it's, of course, brutal and it's, awful and manipulative, but it has the right psychological effect. I know. <laughs> it's, like, psychologically acute yeah. and therefore quite disturbing. But the way, he, the, way the, the, the editor narrates this is, like, the actions of the husband and the father are perfectly reasonable. Yeah. And that it's the woman that has yeah. to... The, the, She's the, condescended to. Yeah, that the mother has to be taken in hand, which I suppose was maybe probably realistic about, mm. you know, the marriage market in those days. You yeah. know, women didn't really have a whole lot of, of say in the matter. But it's just quite astounding to read it and know that this man considered himself a rational, reasonable, enlightened human being and to just dismiss oh, this yeah. treatment as normal... Right. It's, it's awful. <laughs> yes, you're right there. I think that Hogg is, in his novels, quite often sympathetic to the way society, but also literary structures, treat women, particularly in relation to expectations about marriage and um, like the psychological stress that culture and society and historical events actually can place on women who don't have um, the same kind of outlets as men. The Three Perils of Women, uh, which I think we'll talk about in a future episode, hopefully, is a real exploration of that. And it's just wonderful. But what happens to Rabina Colwyn here? Interesting that her name, of course, is the feminine version of Robert so you've got Robert Ringham Sr. and Rubina Colwyn and Robert Ringham Jr. is that her religious mania has sort of is sort of satirized at the beginning at the wedding. But then after this wedding night rape and her withdrawal from her husband, and she really withdraws into this religious sphere and a sort of religious, a strict religious uh, life closeted with her spiritual advisor and you know hog plays with whether they're really just practicing religion or whether there's something more salacious going on what the, the nature of the fervor is but there's a way of seeing her withdrawal into religion as like a response to trauma and that she uh this her particular way of practicing religion which is very by the book. She adheres sort of rigorously to the structures of reading and arguing and questioning, uh, which in some ways is her reclaiming agency. But um, I think also, you know, it's a private practice. 
um, within very clear structures and she doesn't really break out of them. Um, and you've got a rather wonderful passage, though, uh, that has her son, Robert Ringham, uh, trying to do just that. Robert is somebody puffed up with his own sophistry and justification for his behaviour um, all the way through his narrative in the same way mm. that um, the editor's biases come to the fore. And... and the first scene, even, in Robert's n- narration in his diary, when he's debating with his mum and Robert Sr. about ineffectual calling, with with also the great character of the servant, yes. John Barnett, in the background. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, Robert right. is asked about effectual calling, and in response, he says, he asks her a question, well, what is ineffectual calling? He's showing off. That's yeah. the, the whole point of it. He's showing off that he can think and twist and turn words and twist right. and turn ideas and all that kind of thing. And then his mother ends it with, what a wonderful boy he is. But then John Barnett says, I'm feared you turn out to be a conceited gook. <laughs> <laughs> and John Barnett, John, John Barnett suffers for that, doesn't he? So while Robert... And his um, maniacal ravings and the editor and his rational way of being are supposedly presented as opposites. They're actually very similar. So it's the certainty of it. Yeah. You know, the certainty of the opinions of the editor, the certainty of the opinions of um, being the elect. And there's a great bit where um, uh, they're talking, where Robert in his diary is talking about um, when they're first brought to court, um, him and George, after their tussles on the tennis court and everything like that. So he's, they're both brought to court, and, and um, Robert, um, Robert Ringham says, My brother and I were first examined face to face. His declaration was mere romance. Mm-hmm. Mine was not the truth. But it was by the advice of my reverend father and that of my illustrious friend, both of whom I knew to be sincere Christians and true believers, that I gave it. Which shows that, again, he is actually not bothered about truth. No. He, he's just like, I will say the thing that makes my truth the truth. Yes. Yeah. And he says this with no, with no um, shame. Well, you know, like he, he, sl- he slags off his brother for the mere romance and then said, I lied too, but my lie was the better lie. Yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Absolutely, it was not the truth. <laughs> and I think, I suppose, particularly in the times that we're living in just now, where mm-hmm. certainty and polarisation and the unwillingness... Fake news. Fake and the unwillingness to see nuances in all arguments and all yeah. that kind of thing. Just rereading this book, it kind of um, it made me squirm a yeah. lot. And yet, this is a novel that just absolutely attacks the idea of certainty at the same time. One of my favourite scenes is when the serving girl, Bessie Gillis, is in the witness box at the trial of Belle Calvert. She's asked about a set of spoons with the letter C on, and she says, well, they could belong to anyone. There are lots of letter Cs. I couldn't be sure that these are the actual spoons um, unless I had marked them myself. And uh, then there's a question about a gown, and she says, I've seen... I, they say, Do you ever, have you ever seen this gown? And she said, I've seen one very like it. <laughs> 
And then she says, unless I've seen her in it, and I've known that she'd paid for it, I'm very scrupulous about an oath, like is an ill mark. <laughs> Say ill indeed that I would hardly swear to anything. Yeah. And, like, that's just, like, critique of Scottish Enlightenment empiricism <laughs> as, like, the basis of a civil society. Like, if you can't bear witness to something, um, then what kind of order can you have? here like it's it's awesome <laughs> she's just like pointing it out and she's and, and she's like she's cleverer than all the other people in the <laughs> yeah totally Everyone, everyone's sitting there in their robes and their wigs <laughs> and, and they're all like this is the truth and she's like could be the truth <laughs> yeah might not be. I know. Well, and everyone knows, everyone knows she's lying. Yeah. You, <laughs> as can't, well. you can't say for sure, so I'm not going to say for sure. Yeah. And um, I think that there's something very Scottish about that, because, of course, we've got three verdicts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and this is definitely an age where um, the Scottish legal system was, like, the hallmark of our national particularity. Mm. Uh, and... So I just feel like this whole book is, like, not proven. <laughs> We're joined by Sheila Shukowski, um, who is a blue bad guy and mm. an expert on John Kay and author of a rather wonderful new book, Enlightenment Edinburgh, A Guide. Uh, published by Berlin. Yes. <laughs> Very recently, in <laughs> June this year. Yeah. Um, and um, this book is a guidebook with a difference, really, because it is a guide to a time as much as a place. Mm. Um, and we're really pleased to have you here with us. Thank to, you. To uh, talk a little bit about Enlightenment Edinburgh and its buildings. Uh, so um, can you tell us a little bit about how the book came about? Well, there was seemed to be a need to have something that wasn't sort of a wonderful academic tome and then not sort of an everyday pick-up, easy-to-read guidebook, just something for the curious traveller that gave you a little more information, took you beyond the old town into other areas of the city and also something that was very practical, easy to carry and um, that had lots of photographs, so... That's how Enlightenment Edinburgh, and of course it's a period of history that's you know, very important for the city and its history. So it looms large in its legend. It looms large, <laughs> indeed it does, Enlightenment yes. Edinburgh. And I think what the book, uh, one of the things the book um, expresses so well is like how this is a period of transition mm. um, in the city from... And it's um, not just our Enlightenment, it's part of a big yeah. Enlightenment yes. that was happening in Scotland and in Europe. And so, you know, we can't get into ethnic conceit here and say that we did it <laughs> yes, all. that's so important. Um, I love yes. how you foreground that right mm, at the very beginning. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, at the, at, so at the beginning of the Enlightenment period, we've got the famous old town mm. where everybody is living cheek by jowl. That's right. And it's, I mean, the way you write about it actually makes it sound quite nice. <laughs> So yeah, really lively. We can and... smell in the book. If we <laughs> yes. can smell, then yes, it would be quite different. But yeah, I mean, today, you know, we have so many visitors, but actually if you're on the Royal Mile today at a really busy time, which is most of the day, yeah. that's actually what it was like mm-hmm. in the 1750s. I mean, it was that crowded because there was no new town 
and so everybody was there yeah. and of course you didn't want to stay too long in your sort of tiny apartment <laughs> out you were in the street or head into the tavern so it was very much life on the street mm. literally yeah mm. and do you think that in itself sort of helped generate the the enlightenment period well it was a debate drinking debate yeah. went on in the taverns so um and that way um, when they built the new town, you could actually define who your guests were at table, who you would eat and drink with, mm, because right. you invited them. But in the old town, you tumbled out of your house, <laughs> down the stairs, into the tavern, and you could be with anyone. Yeah. And See, so that this is great. great yeah. So, yeah, in a sense, we are, they were, um, you know, the environment dictated how life was lived. Yes, and, and there was a spontaneity to yes, it. Yes, there was a spontaneity yeah. to it and a willingness to to mix. You know, there were those like Adam Smith who had his learned suppers and David Hume, but generally there was a great culture mm. um, out. And, of course, people practised in the taverns, the legal profession. Mm. You know, the last item on the legal <laughs> fee was often, you know, the tavern bill. Um, <laughs> Archibald Pitcairn, who lived a little earlier, the great medic, actually um, held surgeries. In the in, pub? In the pub. <laughs> yeah. And he just had a bunch of shirts that he kept there and changed them and ever so, so often. What ha- One of the things that I found fascinating about reading uh, the text of the book, um, sort of, uh, was that um, was how gradual it seemed to be. Like certain constituencies went to the new town, mm. a certain certain constituencies Stating. stayed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like civic leadership and the clergy. Yes, institutions the, stayed in the old town, and I think I mentioned that the archivists and the physicians. So yeah. the Royal College of Physicians was founded in sixteen eighty one. Then they built their hall in George Street. Financially, it didn't work out, so they end up in Queen Street. Um, and, of course, we had a purpose-built building, the Public Record Office, Register House, mm. which was funded by forfeited Jacobite estates. Um, so this <laughs> yeah. was an interesting <laughs> aspect, um, how, yeah, a and, public building was funded. And so what happened to the sort of tavern culture in the old town there? Well, the tavern culture people, changed because yeah. as soon as the new town was built, I mean, David Hume was one of the first people to move to the new town yeah. and kind of had his last supper in his <laughs> new town house. So it was still, in the old time, people went to the taverns. You just probably didn't have the same variety. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, the old order was passing away, but, you know, it was mm. a slow demise. Um, and I think, you know, when people define the Enlightenment, they use different timescales. You know, I like to think of time as concertina. You know, was it just when a few books were published that mm. changed the world? Or do you stretch it out to yeah. um, Walter Scott in 1832? So what do you define as the Enlightenment Edinburgh period? I really think it is the 1740s right through to Walter Scott. Right. And then I think you're getting into an age of nostalgia then. That's when Kay's portraits are mm. published. Um, when mm. there's this great interest in looking back yes. and um, moving into the new Victorian age. Which so, is so interesting mm. because um, I was thinking about, you know, uh, coteries and groups of people and conversation. Mm. And in this post-enlightenment mm. moment, which some people would talk about, like the second half of the period that she had mm. just mm. demarcated um, as being a sort of post-enlightenment. So the second generation of Dougal, people who had studied under Dougal Stewart mm. and all of that kind of thing, they parody as well. Like yes. the Blackwoods conversations and Hogg is so much part of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a sort of parody of the enlightenment. Everything is staged and so many like multifaceted layers and everything. And So you would 
the, would you think of the Enlightenment as something that sprung up quite naturally because of the way people lived then? Yes, I think and the way they lived encouraged it. But also, literacy is so important in that so many people were literate. And again, education. We were the most literate nation in Europe by 1750. And so that meant everyone had access to books. We had the circulating libraries. Mm. Um, which was so a great phenomenon. So everyone could you know, exchange ideas. Donkey as well. had his prints in the window. There were visuals, and um, you had the conversations. You had the societies, like the select and all these other sort of um, societies that flourished in pubs. And yeah. that was it, you know. <laughs> and so then, in the later period that Christian was talking about, do you feel the Enlightenment therefore became much more of a performative thing rather than yeah, mm, I think a it real did. natural. Yeah. yeah, I think the whole mood exchange. changes, mm. um, and once you start building buildings. Yes. I mean, that's a big performance, yes. isn't yeah. it? And you've got institutions <laughs> that now, you have the Royal College of Physicians, the Royal College of Surgeons, 1832, so they have this great institution sticking there. Um, the university buildings are, you know, completed. They've stalled in the 1790s after mm. Robert Adam died and war with France, and then that all starts to get built up again. So, yeah, structurally, everything changes, mm-hmm. and, of course changes the people and the way they live as well. And it's also this segregation. Yeah. So mm. the old town, then suddenly there's a social watershed. Yeah. And so the older and the decrepit. I often say it was the woofies who went over to the other side, the, <laughs> the well off and over 50. <laughs> oh, right, the woofies. I've yeah. never heard that. That sounds like the new town today. <laughs> yeah, woofy land. And so, yeah, the old town. And, of course the old town does fall apart and really it's only when Patrick Geddes and others come along I mean we did have the Improvement Acts 1860s when Chambers Street was built Mm -hmm. first real wide street um, but of course, the first move wasn't to the new town yes. that we know today. It was actually yes. south to George Square. Exactly. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. The great mm. thing about this book is that you know everybody just sort of thinks old town and then the new town, mm. which is you know, you know over the normal mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> James Craig, yeah, seventeen sixty-two, yes. mm. whatever. But it is amazing yeah. that James Craig. Here we are. How enlightened were we that we allowed a young twenty-something-year-old mm. to design us a new town? I, I think mean, that is enlightened. Very in life in the 18th century and given all the things that had happened we'd had union we'd had jacobite defeat it was like a national nervous breakdown yeah. in scotland and yet we managed to pick ourselves up build a new town become the most famous university in europe and you know our medical school and so forth that so, was the the interesting part mm. that you've put at the at the beginning was about this you know vacuum mm. in scottish life mm. now with the court leaving yes. in 1603 and then the and then the, and then the political life mm. leaving to london in mm. 1707 so they were like well we have to have a cultural mm-hmm. hub here yes and that's how the so what and so was it like a, a project that seems to be you know, like a conscious civic project. Well, I think so. I think George Drummond, who's often quoted mm. as a great visionary, I think certainly, you know, you had the academic side, the philosophers saying, yes, we need to fill in this big vacuum. But then he had the vision to do it physically with mm. new buildings. Yeah. So it dovetailed very nicely. We got a new royal infirmary. We got the city chambers. Admittedly, it started as a royal exchange with yes. great intentions um, it doesn't quite work out. That but, was so interesting yeah. that the merchants liked to they, they still even liked though to be this, the street. Even though this massive Grecian or mm-hmm. building was there for them, they mm. preferred to stay by the Market Cross, um, yeah. which 
was the moving of it or the taking down of the well, the American Cross? Cross, so yeah, was very emotive issue. It was an emotive issue, and I mean, people still talked about the cross, even though it wasn't there. Right, <laughs> you could still meet there where yeah. it had been, and of course, it's there. It's it's you can still see it today. It took me a while to work out what had happened. Yes, um, it was taken down and then it was brought back. And um, Walter Scott managed to pinch a few bits of the old um, <laughs> and they all on the walls at Abbotsford yes, somewhere. Of course, probably, yeah. as with many many other things. And of course, it originally set out in the street. It's demarcated with a hexagonal. I'm not sure how shapes, but out in the street. And it had been moved because it narrowed the street where it originally was. And um, so now, and then it was re- so it was relocated in the ninth in the later nineteenth yes, century. That's right, behind St Giles. Do you think that that was because of a renewed interest in like Victoria, the Victorian interest in medievalism? Like yeah, again, it's nostalgia, and yeah. once you get into very commercial. That whole society then, you know, people start to think, mm. oh, let's get some of our institutions back. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like even today, you know, the First World War has now become history because nobody was there. Nobody mm. remembers yeah. it. And so we're looking at the events of the First World War a different way now. Yes. Um, and of course, by, you know, 1840, anyone who knew anyone in the Enlightenment was pretty much dead. Mm. So it's a whole new generation that are looking mm. back. And... Um, so yeah, it was a great part of our history, and it certainly. Um, but it wasn't easy. It seems well. like one of the things that sort of sort of emerging through reading like Hogg's mm. fiction, but also mm. talking to you here, is that it wasn't easy for people to adjust. Yeah, like yeah. their lived life. Yeah, within mm. a lifetime and a sort of experience. Um, did Did you get a sense that the people themselves at the time knew? We are living through an the No, I don't think they did. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like in everyone's life, you know, you can never quite understand why things are happening yeah. to you. Yeah. And then 10 years down the line, you look mm. back and you join the dots. Yeah. So I don't think anyone was really joining the dots until like 1820s, 1830s. Yeah. They started look looking back done. and look what <laughs> they've done. Yeah. People are very, very sort of attuned, or Hogg is in particular attuned to the like psychological yes. pressure of that. Mm. Yes. And uh, Stevenson then mm. later. Yes, mm. yes, of course. Um, and how it, how these sort of frameworks that are suddenly thrown up for you as improving, yeah. you know, might be um, contrary to how you feel mm. or how you live your life. Mm. Do you think yeah. pe- could, that seems to be the creation, the, the creation of the new town and the tale of two cities? Is that the genesis of of the character of Scotland? As... I think it might be. I mean, I always think mm. of <clears throat> Edinburgh as having a very Jekyll and Hyde character. Well, famously, and, you yeah. know, we've got Deacon Brodie, allegedly the inspiration. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But even today, you know... <laughs> I was in St Andrew's Square. I mean, where in the world would you find Louis Vuitton yes. at a bus station in the same building? <laughs> but that's yeah. a fascinating thing about the city and, you know, how it's such a great city to live in. You just have these great contrasts. And, of course, it started with Enlightenment, Edinburgh, Newtown, Town. Mm. And yet many things drew people together, like societies, yeah. you know, the varied membership. Mm. Um, and, you know, yeah, it did change in the new town, but it, it was a slow process. It just mm. didn't happen yeah. overnight. There was a great bit, bit in the book where there we're talking about George Square and, mm. and the making of George Square, and it seemed like every like it was a who's who of a oh, yeah. in Edinburgh that lived in George Square. Mm. And while I was reading it, I was thinking. What a great sitcom, this mm-hmm. George, yeah. <laughs> George Square Enlightenment and all the sort of intellectuals and everything are, yeah. you know. 
when in James two of these were very powerful people, but didn't they didn't move to the new town? It was mm. interesting. They wanted more space. They wanted a townhouse, but, but physically they just didn't want to jump over the chasm. Yeah. And but of course the opportunity came earlier. So you could say, oh well, they jumped. They had spunk. They were willing <laughs> to leave the lo- old town before mm. anybody else. I mean, we had done things in the old town, like opened out Milne's Court and we had Chessel's Court yeah. and the Cannon Gate. But George Square was the first real proper, yeah, um, stylish square, if you like. And still, it's a shame we don't have all of it, but mm. at least we have two sides. The book is such a great thing to have in front of you because what you're pointing out are fragments often mm. of things that is that you can sort of just see, or buildings that are hidden behind yes. other ones. Yes, and the book gives the period sketches mm. and engravings mm. of what lots things of great like. photographs and yeah. yeah so so you'll have the photograph and the black and white image mm. of um how it used to be which is just so helpful mm. um, we tried to eliminate street furniture but that was quite difficult <laughs> in the boat <laughs> in 21st yeah. century traffic who wants uh, a wheelie bin on a picture we don't want wheelie bins <laughs> no they particularly don't want wheelie bins in the new town no yeah. <laughs> But that's the great thing about the book is that it really shows how in all these areas of Edinburgh we are still within a living, breathing, enlightened absolutely, absolutely place. And do you have a favourite um, building or statue or feature as well? I do like the statue of Robert Ferguson in the Cannon Gate right, because. Uh-huh. There he is. I mean, he died young, made such a contribution to Edinburgh life, influenced so many people, and he just is there on the sidewalk. He almost walks yes. alongside you. Well, yeah. I think that's quite deliberate. But I just—it's quite an active statue, yes. mm. which seems like a weird thing to say. I but. know, and he had um, such a great turn of phrase, and yeah, I think I'm so happy that we have a statue of someone like him mm. in the city, and it draws a lot of attention and. Yeah, I always try and explain how important he is and what a contribution for such a young man. Yeah, and the great thing about the book as well is there's a lot of anecdote as well mm. as the usual historical study of the period. That's so, right. So, I mean, we talked about statues of Burns in a previous podcast mm. and, and it's great to hear the stories behind other statues that were mm. that were made of our Enlightenment luminaries like mm. the, the Adam Smith statue, like the little details and you're like... Yeah, oh, Jefferson's Corner, yeah. and um, yeah, I like the dig at the university, never having given the him a Glasgow chair. Room. But again, yeah. enlightened Edinburgh. There we have Smith, and of course, eighteen twenty four, James Bravewood, an enlightened, very ordinary guy in the city, but he gives us our first civic fire brigade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as well as you know the theory of moral sentiment and wealth of nations. Something as practical as a civic fire brigade was actually very important for the time. And worthy um, to be yes. commemorated Yeah, it took well. us a little while to get the statue <laughs> up, but it is there now. We're just waiting on a female. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. we had female contributions to the Enlightenment, but, you know, it was a man's Enlightenment, alas, yeah. and mm. it would be nice to draw out more. They did have their mark, um, and certainly in the 19th century it was to be more extensive. So do you have a favoured enlightenment figure that hasn't been commemorated yet that you think should be commemorated oh thinking about that who in the enlightenment because there has there's has, there's a lot of chat just now about getting a, a female yes. statue yes up in yes well i think elsie in... ingalls will go uh, into the 20th yes. century i think elsie um, will be the one that will get her statue mm. before anyone else but and deservedly so mm. um 
and you know it's a shame that yeah it took so long but <laughs> and it's just one at a time as yeah, well yeah. <laughs> well ironically in 1812 um edinburgh allowed a female to graduate in medicine mm, wow um you know which would have been a very enlightened yes. thing had yes. they really meant to do it but of course she was disguised as james miranda barry and lived her life as a male surgeon wow her and whole a, life she lived her whole life only when she died in 1865 did they discover that james miranda barry md <gasps> 1812 edinburgh That's was in fact a she amazing what a brilliant so story we yeah. didn't have females until the end of the 19th century in the medical school and edinburgh in particular was very anti-women in medicine yeah. so without knowing it they had done something very enlightened. Where's, the, mo- where's the movie about her? Yeah. Yeah. Allegedly is being thought about. Oh, right. Someone has done a screenplay. And, um, yeah, the plaque, I've included the plaque in the book, but it's under scaffolding at the moment in Old College. But, yes, that's an interesting story how... What a great story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I even think when you're in Old College, who was walking around there? If you'd been in the 1820s, Charles Darwin was yeah. walking about... Um, John James Audubon was over in the United States, mm. um, the great doctors, the great philosophers, you know, that constant collision with good company. Mm. It's guaranteed. That's what you feel mm. like when you're reading the book. You're mm. just like, oh, yeah. everybody's just popping rooms to Walter mm. Scott's for a cup of tea, mm. and then they'll go to, to, to William Ferguson's for a wee libation. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... It's great. You, mm. and, but there's also, I like to think about them not being on every day, yeah. as it were. It's yeah. like some days they probably passed in the street and grunted. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I think the weather clearly would have dictated how much time they spent out in the street. Well, but yeah. of course, the taverns were... And the coffee houses too. It yeah. wasn't just always mm. drink. But then you had coffee houses in Parliament close. There were okay. lots and lots of them. Yeah. And um, these were meeting places. Announcements were made there. People would have letters delivered to a coffee house. Um, that was where a lot of business was actually carried out. Meetings, whatever. Yeah. So the coffee house, I mean, really only started in the 17th century and originally were known as penny universities. Um, <laughs> you paid a penny for your coffee and you could... The university yeah. of life. Yeah. And, and it's great that all these places and all this history just still is the, the main draw. Mm. Well, one thing I think would be nice to do for the city is to have a plaque system. Mm. Like they have in London, they have the, the blue, blue plaques ah. because it's, um, this is in Edinburgh. It's a bit more higgledy piggledy, isn't yeah. it? It's random. Yes. We have the brown plaques yeah. at the university, but they're all high up. You can't see them. They <laughs> blend in with the stone. It's like we don't want anyone to know. It's <laughs> it's almost our character, yeah. isn't it? Yes, to be private. Yeah, we're quite like, proud. Yeah, um, no, it seems like people uh, abroad appreciate mm. what Edinburgh. Did yes. and 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 became more than what we do because mm. I mean the layman's mm. not taught in schools. It's, no, it's 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 probably. Do you yeah, think we get lots of American as, students doing yeah. Scottish Enlightenment and they come uh, here. Absolutely, mm. I I wonder whether it's because the philosophies people are scared of the philosophy. Mm. Do you think these ideas became how we ended up living? Yes, yeah. so yeah. yes. they just put put it into words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, let's base everything on an observation mm-hmm. of human nature mm-hmm. and understand how people operate mm. in order to organise our mm. society. Well, they were challenging the dogma of the past. Yeah. I suppose yeah. there was a sort of mental awakening. Yeah, you just don't believe everything the minister tells you. Yes. That, yeah, let's think about it ourselves. And, of mm. course, the development of science 
and great figures like, you know, I think the scientists are hard done by, really. We mm. hear a lot about the philosophers, but, mm. you know, Joseph Black, the chemist, mm. James Hutton, these characters mm. were going to have a huge impact. So if you are a tourist or a, a native, mm. then I we absolutely recommend this book to you to get to know your, your, this city in a way that we all should and should celebrate it far more than we do. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sheila. Okay, thank Thank you. you. So thank you all for listening to this edition of A Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. Um, And big thanks to um, Sheila Shkakovsky for speaking to us earlier on. And if you're interested in hearing more from Sheila, she has an event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival in August. And she's also doing a walking tour with the lovely independent bookshop Lighthouse, um, the old Word Power Books. Yep. Um, so if you want to find out more about those events, go on to the Book Festival's website and the Lighthouse's website. Um, next time we'll be talking about Emma Tennant. We are staying with the divided self and we're talking about Two Women of London, which is Emma Tennant's retelling of uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. And we'll also be talking to our very own Polygon author, Kevin McNeil, about his second novel, the Method Actors Guide to Jekyll and Hyde, which is his own modern reimagining of the Jekyll and Hyde story. Yeah. Um, he is also bringing out a new anthology on the works of Robert Louis Stevenson, so we'll also be talking about that as well. I hope you can join us. See you then. Bye.